Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Welcome to Newsweek's Foreign Service. I'm Josh Lowe. And I'm Marin Gidder. And each week we look at the big stories from the US and what they mean for the rest of the world. This week we are tackling the thorny issue of mental health. We decided we wanted to talk about this because Hillary Clinton, the Democratic presidential nominee, has just laid out this rather intense of mental health agenda. Yeah, and it's not just this mental health in general. It's it's this idea that Hillary's put forward, that other governments in the past have put forward, or politicians, that we need to treat mental health and physical health as the same. Um, so we kind of want to look at that issue and whether that's possible even and how long it's going to take and how you do it. Because it's not just a political issue. It's not just something that governments can do. Right. This is something that affects one in four to one in five people. Clearly, there is huge demand for there to be mental health parity. And yet we're still not seeing it. And it is definitely worth exploring whether lack of, say, popular support for it means that governments aren't really pushing the mental health agenda as much as they perhaps should be. And it's governments, yeah, but it's also normal people because um, everyday people have mental health problems, their friends have mental health problems, and yet they still don't always think of it as something that they can talk about or seek help for in the same way as they do with a physical health problem. So it's it's a cultural thing too, as well, not just governments. And of course, it doesn't always manifest itself as obviously. So it's very easy to come into work and say, I've broken my leg, look, here's, here's the plaster cast. But it's much harder to say, I'm really suffering from depression, can I have some help? But Josh, I think that's enough from us. So let's bring in our two guests. Joining us this week, we have Elizabeth Cotton, a writer and educator in the field of mental health. Elizabeth runs Surviving Work, an organisation set up for people on how to survive work. Also with us is Doug Siegel, a comedian who talks frequently about mental health and who's just returned from the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. Welcome to you both. Thank Hi. you. Let's start with having a look at what Hillary Clinton's actually said. And it's worth saying at this point that the Democrats are making this a really big issue for the election. In fact, at the Democratic National Convention, they have one of their big, widely covered speeches was from the, the pop star Demi Lovato, um, who was talking about this very issue. And I think we've got a clip of that. By getting educated on this epidemic and its frightening statistics and by breaking the stigma. I urge every politician to support laws that will provide access to better health care and support for everyone. So looking at what Hillary's saying, I mean, there's a, a whole bunch of stuff there, but two of the key points are about integrating, as she puts it, bringing together care for mental health and care for physical health in the same system and also really pushing to help people with mental health problems get employed and keep their employment. So, I mean, those sound like pretty important things, right? I think what's really interesting at the moment is 
the time of it uh, because you've got this dichotomy at the moment in the States between this really sensible idea, uh, you know, here's this thing, that, this invisible problem that affects, you know, a fifth of Americans. And next to that, you've got literally a guy riding around on an elephant talking about building walls and sort of you've got those kind of two things of this really progressive agenda from Hillary on mental health, which is going to need a lot of empathy. While at the same time, you know, Trump is whipping up all the people saying, I don't like those weird guys. You know, why don't we just shoot them? (laughs) You know, and just it just see just ideologically those two things feel so odd. I can't imagine a single Trump voter going, hey, that sounds like a good idea. Oh, you see, I I think this is absolutely the heart of the politics of economic crisis because we've got two very different positions. And I think Hillary, I mean... I have to say, because a lot of us are quite cynical about politicians talking about mental health, because some people would mm-hmm. would say that you have to be a narcissistic psychopath in order to stand <laughs> for the job. So I, I don't have a view on Hillary's own mental health. But she's adopted a humanistic position, which is very important in the political mayhem that's happening. And in psychoanalysis, when we think about what happens to us when we get scared, because this is all about fear. This is all about economic crisis. It's about poverty. It's about people not coping. And it's also about anger as well. America is one of the most dysfunctional countries. You know, it's a tsunami of social unrest which is coming to this country as well. So what she's done is she has, I think, really encapsulated on both a personal and political level what this fight is about. You have this narcissistic, aggressive deeply uncompassionate politics coming from Trump, which says if you're vulnerable, you're a loser, you're a failure. Mm-hmm. And if you if you take Clinton's line on this, it says, actually, we're all vulnerable in this situation. Our only way out of it is to regain our humanity in this debate. But just to be um, the, the voice of cynicism, one thing... That's with, okay with me. <laughs> <laughs> one thing with the Hillary Clinton agenda is she hasn't actually said how she's going to fund this plan. And it, it all seems... I mean, it's it's very interesting. As I said, it's very intensive and in-depth, but there's no concrete measures on this is how much money will be dedicated to it. Well, so, there are some sums in in there. I mean, there's 60 million going towards um, um, sort of facilities for, for the youth, um, which, you know, I think is a massive problem here. And in fact, I have, maybe I'll talk to you about it later, but I have personal experience of that. But parking that for a moment, I think, Yes, it's wise to be cynical about it. After all, the coalition government in this country said they were going to do many of the same things. If you look at the reports coming back, most of those things haven't been implemented. In fact, most of the money earmarked for it has just been siphoned away for different parts of Mm. the NHS. However, there is also a study saying that attitudes towards people with mental health are improving. So the very statement, the very kind of putting a mark in the sand, as you say, at this point, uh, Elizabeth, at this point of economic crisis and, and sort of, it feels like almost kind of a moral conflict to put a marker in the sand there and say, actually, America thinks, you know, perhaps we're all a little bit ill sometimes and we should look after each other. And then I think that sends a big message and it sends a message to a lot of other countries as well. And, you know, I just think whilst our own government may have fouled in some areas in delivering on those things. What what is palpable is that I believe, certainly from personal experience and from research I read this morning, that attitudes towards mental health 
have improved, albeit slowly. Hillary's got a problem. So if we look at this this policy proposal, it's got some very progressive elements to it. And one of those is to address the issue of jobs and housing for people with mental health problems. Now, what do we know? We know that 80% of people who are disabled in USA, UK figures are highly comparable because we're the same types of economies. 80% of disabled people will struggle to find work, have long periods of unemployment. If you're diagnosed with schizophrenia, you're facing a 95% chance of never working again. So the issue around jobs and also what happens to us when we're out of work for a long time and how that affects our mental health is really important. So she has a kind of psychosocial approach, which is very important, which is to say it's not just about what's going on internally. It's also about external realities. And we have to face up to both of them if we're going to get better. But she also has a problem in that you have a fundamentally marketized and medicalized system of healthcare in America. What does that mean? It means that in America, you're probably your only chances of getting decent mental health care are to go private. So in culturally, Americans are okay with therapy, a bit like us now. But the reality is, is if you haven't got the money, you will be put on medication. And there's a big debate about the limitations of having this diagnostic and then medicalized model of health care. You also have these two relatively new private insurance schemes which will cover the cost. So one of the problems with America is your health care is paid for through your employer. So there's always a dilemma for people with mental health problems about whether they disclose that to their medical insurers because they're tied to their workplace. And the fear of victimisation in America is enormous. They have a system of employment at will in America where you can legally be uh, made redundant with no explanation for the redundancy at all. You can just lose your job that day, that hour. Now, that is a system of incredible insecurity for people that are already feeling quite insecure through mental health problems. So one of the dilemmas that her health policy is going to have to face is around issues of confidentiality and about access to decent mental health services, given that the current system in no way offers that. And it does sound like that, that particularly for reasons you've said to do with the system in America, but also in general, you know, work is a big part of people's lives Mm. and how employers treat this, how people feel talking about this to their employers, how they feel at work, has got to be a big part of the discussion here. We've got a clip of Neil Lennon, um, a former footballer, former manager of Celtic, talking about what it's like to be uh, a footballer on the team and trying to put on a kind of brave face. That's maybe a slightly more dramatic job than some of us have, but it's an example of how workplace climate can kind of influence how you deal with this. You put up a barrier, right? You try and put on this facade that you're okay, but inside you're actually dying. You know, especially in a football sort of environment, you're sitting with a group of lads and they're all laughing and joking and you're sitting there thinking, God, I'd give anything to be back to where I was before and get out of this. I mean, I'm interested to hear, to start with anyone here's experiences about dealing with mental health at work or, or you know, how, how people have felt about it or friends or, or anything like that? I think Lennon's just described exactly what happened during the entire month that he had a befringe for about half of my colleagues. <laughs> um, right, right, yeah. Um, my, my personal experience with mental health is uh, I was diagnosed about 12 years ago with cyclothymia, which is bipolar light, as popularised by national treasure Stephen Fry. Um, <laughs> And, and recurrent depressive disorder. And I had a horrific time at work because I was talking to Elizabeth about this before we came up because the second the mental health flag went up, 
suddenly the entire personnel department went into damage limitation mode. Not least because they recognised, I think I'm probably legally allowed to say this now, but they recognised that no small part, part of my issues have been exacerbated by the bullying culture that was going on at my company. And suddenly there, there was an awful lot of uh, non-disclosure agreements being put in front of me and, and very, very large sums of money to go away quietly and never mention this happened. And actually that's awful because, you know, the reality is although I've done well now and, you know, I've gone on and had a, a fabulous career in showbiz since then, had I wanted to remain there, that wasn't an option open to me. Nobody said, do you know what? You've been a valuable member of this company for, I think at the time, seven years. You're a board director here. Um... You know, up until this all going a bit shaky for you, we valued you. Let's help you fix it. It was just, how do we make this problem go away? And I think that's the reality for many people. Mm. Uh, and I was lucky enough to be senior enough that I was being offered money rather than simply, well, look, why don't you just go away? Yeah, and I think the issue around cultures is really important. In some sectors, the culture is diametrically opposed to anybody actually being a human being, let alone struggling with life. I, a couple of years ago, the PFA, the Professional Footballers Association, asked me to go in and design some mental health courses and trainings for young footballers who hadn't gone on to professional football. So 18, and they already feel like a failure. And I, I'm not, I must say, I'm not massive into football, so they kind of chose me because I, wasn't, I didn't have any idealisations about what it means to a footballer. From a mental health perspective, it's an utter disaster because it's not just your team that looks upon you as a failure, it's your parents as well, your heavily invested, ambitious parents that have designed their whole life around you getting to practice and the whole family is designed around this child being a success. Now, the mental health implications of this are disastrous. I ended up not doing the gig because I couldn't say it in a way that was palatable for the Professional Footballers Association because what I was actually saying was, what you're doing here is mad and it's actually risking young people. You could say the same thing about the finance sector, for example. Young, you know, not terribly resilient, overconfident people being put in situations of very high risk to feel very badly about themselves. But which is interesting because how do you get to a point where you're meeting them halfway? Because yeah. to some extent, having a culture of competition and, you know, being better than the other person and, and sort of you know, really being quite harsh and critical on yourself has, is a central part of sport, to use the example you were That's just right. using. But taken too far, that can really be damaging. So how do you, how do you get to a point where you can kind of balance the, the, the need for some kind of, you know, slightly difficult culture with making sure people know how to say when it's really becoming a problem? Well, there's, there's lots of things. Hopefully we'll come on to it. Relationality is one of them. If you don't have some relationship somewhere in your life where you can actually say how you feel without there being repercussions for you, then you've got a problem. And I think we do we do live, it, the same in the States, very individualistic cultures. So we're fighting against the stream, so we have to be a bit shameless about forming relationships. But I think also we, we have to be sure that we don't waste a good crisis. So what's happening is that there are, there are some real personal and organisational crises happening now. People are being bullied and victimised, losing their jobs because of mental health problems. So what matters is not 
can we stop it going wrong, but how do we respond when it goes wrong? So particularly around issues around victimisation, I work a lot with frontline managers and they are on the front line. So a manager's attitude towards mental health and what they do when somebody comes forward with a mental health problem is absolutely key. So not panicking and trying to work out a way that doesn't immediately re-stigmatise the issue in the workplace, I think is key. And isn't, isn't that one of the big problems that people don't feel comfortable going to their manager and saying I need time off for therapy and it does seem strange because I agree with I think Doug you said it earlier that people's perceptions towards mental health are improving you know it's it's becoming something we can talk about we have a culture that sort of allows for therapy but at the same time people worry that if they go to their manager and say I need time off for therapy the manager's going to think that they're unhinged Mm -hmm. right I think it's improving I mean but it's improving from such a low base I mean, we're really only a couple of steps up from paying a penny to go and poke and, and throw eggs at the madman in a in a in a bedlam. Um, <laughs> but it, but that's still better than it was. Um, I mean, I read again today that thirty six percent of people in a poll taken last year uh, believe that a characteristic of someone with mental illness is a propensity to violence. Thirty six percent of people, and, it, and this this is in part the same survey saying, well, actually, it's getting better. The problem with it is, is that it's an invisible illness. Not only is it an invisible illness, and you may not agree with this, Elizabeth, but I think one of the problems you've got is unlike, say, diagnosing a heart condition where you can say that valve is not working, all of the diagnoses in mental health are just what do these symptoms most closely resemble in in the I can't remember what the manual's called, but there's a manual which DSM five. That's the kitty DSM five, which is American. Yes, um, <laughs> and the reality is, we don't know what any mental illness is. No. All we're trying to do is because there aren't hard and fast rules. You know, the, the fact is, my own diagnosis has gone from bipolar one, I think that's the lighter one, isn't it, to cyclothymia with recurrent depressive because that none of that means anything it doesn't mean anything what happens is sometimes I get suicidal sometimes I have um, highs and I frequently have bleak bleak depression and that's the only reality of my condition so if something's so intangible Mm. how on earth can you kind you can't look at it and go well yeah I can see you've got a broken leg how can you expect people to necessarily understand Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. that and how can you expect people not to be afraid of it that's right I think that's I do agree with you I believe profoundly that mental health or illness is on a spectrum I actually I mean I understand the sort of campaigning aspect to one in four but I'd say it's four in four you know Mm. all of us Mm. have mental health issues and all of us are just a step away from something very serious happening most of us don't see it coming you know so I, I think the sort of the diagnostic 
holistic approach isn't very helpful. But I understand why it happens, and it happens all the time, and we repeat it as human beings, and this isn't ever going to go away. Because what we're trying to do is say there's this line, bit like Trump, we're going to try and build a wall between mentally ill and the sane. And I know which side I want to be on, and I want to reinforce that wall very rigidly, which is why we get so rigid mm. and messed up, and we say really horrific things to ourselves and other people, because we're trying to separate the world into this caste system. But, but on one level, so there's you've both given very good reasons for why people find some of this stuff scary or strange or intangible. Yeah. At the same time, it sort of seems odd that it is scary and strange and intangible when so many people have some kind of mental but, health But if you, if you consider for a moment that, as we say, we're trying to put names on things that don't have names or mm. forms or shapes, they're nebulous things, mental illness can only be experienced and properly experienced and understood by the person actually experiencing it. Mm. You know, your depression may not feel the same as mine. And therefore, we, we are kind of isolated. And because of that fear, you talked about having someone that you can relate to, because of that fear. I mean, I had very recently, um, very recently I took an overdose. Very, very recently. And I haven't even told my agent that, so I'm sorry if you're listening to this now. <laughs> um, be, because kind of, and you know, he knows that I have mental health issues. He has another client who is, who does shows about her mental health issues. You know, he, I know he's okay. Nevertheless, there is still that fear that the fact that I try to take my own life makes me a liability. And, you know, and I'm sure he's had issues. But trying to relate to someone else's intangible concept doesn't, doesn't exist. But and I think what we do is we relate to the the monsters and the structures that, we, that we've created as stand-ins for those That's for those right. And, but I think, look, this is really another aspect to it, which is not only does the reality of mental distress, because it's a, let's, I, I don't use the word depression, for example, I just use the word distress, because mm -hmm. we can all relate mm. to that. The trouble is, dealing with distress is distressing. <laughs> so we all get a bit anxious, and then we look for these magic solutions. Now, what very interesting aspect to um, Clinton's policy is this constant use of this word behavioral mm -hmm. so she's talking about behavioral techniques beha research into evidence-based behavioral therapies in the uk the dominant model that we use here is cbt cognitive and behavioral big therapy fan. so i'm actually a big fan of cbt as a technique mm -hmm. but what's being delivered through iap services increased access to psychological therapies which is the big public health scheme is not therapy Absolutely it is sub therapy right. so Absolutely four right. sessions and if we could just actually for listeners okay. who aren't up on it, just brief definition of cognitive behavioural therapy. So it looks at mm, cognitions <laughs> and behaviours. So it <laughs> says, this is, this is me, I'm, I'm psychoanalytic, so I'm <laughs> just a bit deep about this stuff. So it says, okay, there's some deep stuff, unconscious stuff going on, and it is coming out in your cognitions, what you think, and your behaviours. Rather than spending 10 years on the couch, we are going to try some particular techniques which are light... But they help you often in, in situations of crisis to try and switch the cognitions. No, I am not a complete failure because I feel depressed. I'm just a human being. And behaviours, no, I'm not going to take drugs in response to quite, my feelings quite of depression. Quite a good way I think of looking at it is thinking about your thinking. Yeah. I think that's, yeah. that's, the, that's the, the mantra I use when I use the CBT I've done. And I think what you said about how CBT isn't being delivered. I had uh, about four or five years of CBT from when I had private medical insurance 
because I couldn't get access to stuff on the National Health. And and having seen what's available on National Health, as you say, that's not CBT. No. It's, it's if anything... It's a cipher for it so they can tick a box. You see, this is what we also want to hear. We're seduced by this. We Absolutely. go, oh, my God, four sessions and the depression's over. How mm. brilliant. And we add that up. And then if you pay a psychological well-being practitioner who's just graduated as a psychologist mm-hmm. and she's 23 and you pay her £9 an hour without supervision... Wow, that is an economic model. So so perhaps that's kind of the problem. You know, we have mm. politicians saying, oh, we absolutely do want to focus on mental health. Mm-hmm. But then the way it's being delivered doesn't quite work. We then have accountants absolutely. curtailing that. I've just finished yeah. a survey. I'm just showing off now. But I've just finished a survey, the largest survey of mental health workers in the UK. It was called the Surviving Work Survey. And we're going to start producing the results in October. And I have listened to a 100 psychotherapists on the phone for an hour talk about their own distress in their work. The big issue, the big fight that's going to happen in this country is over subtherapy. What is being delivered is on the NHS is subtherapy. Both the clinicians mm-hmm and the clients are struggling with it. Why? Because they've been told this is therapy and if they don't recover, they take it as a personal failure rather than a systemic mm-hmm. one. The maths do not add up. Richard Layard from the LSE, of course, very famously gave the business case for mental health services. He did not include decent wages, supervision and clinical training in that model. We have a fiction called a mental health service and within five years' time it will have broken down. And Doug, I just wanted to ask, because you obviously talked about um, taking an overdose, which is horrible to listen to. Um, it's, Hooray, um, no. spreading fun and joy. <laughs> no, but it is. It's, it's so sad to hear. And I just wanted to ask you, what do you think could have been done differently to have stopped that from happening? I mean, would it have been better NHS provision? Would it have been uh, honestly, greater public perception? Honestly, and this is, this I think perhaps is not the answer anyone would want. I'm not sure anything it happened because... I was under a lot of stress. All of the triggers, almost every single one of them, for my mental illness had been fired off in rapid succession. The only thing that perhaps could have stopped it would have been if I'd taken that break, thought about my thinking, taken a helicopter view of the situation. And kind of one of the things that I've been taught in CBT is rather than to react with how I'm necessarily feeling in that moment, but take a step back and say, well, look, what do I want the outcome of this to be? What possible choices do I have at this point what choices can I make and then maybe still make the wrong choice but at least do it knowing that I've examined all the choices that's the only thing that could have happened Mm. now I at least have had that as training Somebody that's had four sessions of tick box CBT, they, they haven't. It's just such a the, the dilemma is we, is we have to accept ourselves as we are. Mm. And a lot of us are utterly defiant <laughs> and resistant and in denial about our, our internal worlds. That's how we are, I'm afraid. And there's a big development, a big movement, which I'm really attracted to, called the Unrecovery Movement in the UK, which is mental health networks, just saying, look, if, you, if this is the model of recovery which is compulsory fitness in this country, I'm not interested. I'm not going to go on this journey towards recovery. Now, I'm not saying that on an individual level that's an answer to things. But the reality is that we have to accept that we don't always get better. Some people do die in hospitals. Mm. Some people, they just manage their condition rather than make it better. And we have to accept that as part part of mental illness, you know. And I think that makes perfect sense. A lot of what you've both just said makes a lot of sense and is about 
ways that individuals who have uh, these conditions or whatever can think about this. There's another side to this as well, of course, which is about how everyone, both those with conditions and without, think about mental health in general mm. and the people who have it. And it, I'd like mm. to just play one more clip, which is um, an example of something which I, I'd be interested to know your views on this. Does it show that things are getting a bit better in terms of perceptions of mental health? This was Owen Smith, the contender for the Labour leadership, um, referred to uh, the current Labour leader, Jeremy Corbyn, as quote unquote, a lunatic, which I think we can all agree is not the nicest piece of language to use uh, as an insult. And what you want to from me is some, you know, lunatic at the top of the Labour Party. You will have some nice a coherent narrative about what's wrong with Britain. See, now, some people <laughs> laughing there, not the, not the most pleasant clip at all, but... What then happened was that turned into a big row. The papers picked him up on it, including many of the right-wing papers who mm. 10 years ago wouldn't have had the slightest issue with anyone using the word lunatic as a derogatory term. And he had to apologise on public radio and all the rest of it. It was a full-on, good old-fashioned political scandal. Um, does that show that we're going in a good direction in terms of how people see mental health? Are people more aware of this stuff or is that a bit of a sideshow? There's still Hon- huge Honestly, problems um, I mean, I... I'm quite happy to refer to myself as a loony on occasion, you know. <laughs> I'll, I'll happily use that and own it. And I honestly think this this business with, oh, so this this is just people looking for things with which sticks with which to beat people. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think it's just oh, you're not allowed to say that word. Brilliant, brilliant. We can get him. Get him. Um, <laughs> rather than the reality. Thing, yeah, I I I I think so. I think. Do you know, one thing that I think has shifted culturally is because we're a bit more sort of sophisticated around media and communications is that the value of authenticity has gone up massively. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're like heat-seeking missiles, aren't we? We can tell when someone's bullshitting us or mm. neuro-linguistically programming us. And I think our capacity to say... Tell me what you think, honestly or not. I'm sorry, but the Telegraph telling me about mental health can go away. <laughs> That's my politest version of that. Because it's not authentic. So I, th- I think, no, I mean, I think what people say matters more, obviously, what people do. And I think that the need for us to be realistic about what it's going to take and what it's going to cost to set up a sustainable mental health service in the USA and the UK we have to talk turkey. We can't keep being nice to each other. I think the other thing to say about people who are st- suffering from mental distress is that a lot of us are not weak, sort of vulnerable people. We're furious. Mm. We are angry, which is a very ugly emotion, and people run from it like Ballerie, especially at work. And I spend most of my... I work a lot with health workers on how to survive work. And the number one thing that we talk about is, firstly, bullying and how my people that I like and my team is actually bullying me and the second thing is how do I deal with anger without losing my job Mm -hmm. so there's some very ugly emotions going on here what goes on in the press is a very sanitized politically correct version of it it doesn't even touch the sides and so in terms of outside of the press then in terms of day-to-day in in your work particularly I guess you must come across how people view mental health all the time but both of you do we think that perceptions are shifting in any positive way of the way that mental health is treated or do you think more better but as I said earlier from such a low base yeah i mean and the fact that i can say the things i've said on this podcast i don't think i probably could have said them 10 years ago that said we're still kind of we we aren't past the base camp yet alone getting near the top of the mountain but that said i'm i think a bit like feminism in this country i'm grateful for any step forwards we're taking (laughs) at all i think this is right look if you look systemically what's happening in workplaces what's what's happening 
Money's going down. Command and control management is going up. Do this now. No discussion. Democracy is going down in workplaces. Teamworking is going down. Bullying is going up. Racism is going up. These are systemic problems that we can't feel nice about. So I would, I, I never advise people to disclose their mental health status at work. It entirely depends on your situation and your contract of employment, whether it is secure mm. or not. I think that one of the problems with turning this in that into a mental health problem is that it individualizes a collective problem. If you have a work place culture that bullies people, there will be psychological repercussions for it, and it is a collective problem. It's not an individual problem, it's a collective one. We're all involved in that, even if we're just standing on the sides going, oh, that's a bit bad. We're still involved in it. We've talked, you know, a lot about the the problem that many people, people face, and what I want to get from both of you is what needs to be done, what needs to be changed, because if we've got politicians saying, we want to tackle the problem, we're going to set aside money to tackle the problem, and yet it's still not going away, that, I mean, that's quite worrying. So I would love to hear what, what needs to change. How do we stop this? How do we treat people? I think uh, what Elizabeth said about authenticity is at the core of it. Mm. And I think it's such a long haul. And you may have, I'm sure that you will have many more practical uh, views on this than I do. But I think for things to change, there has to firstly be a genuine and authentic will for it to change, and I don't believe that's there at the moment. I think um, a wise politician would be putting forward policies to improve the nation's national health because that is a clearly a vote-winning strategy with any kind of liberal voter. However, to actually make that happen will require a very large sum of money and a very large mm. investment of time, which will then also require taxation and, and, and the end of austerity and all of those things. I think what we need to do is have an authentic buy-in that this is genuinely a problem, it's a problem that will cost money, and that that is money well spent before we can action it. I just think there has to be that mandate from the electorate saying, yes, I will vote for rate increases, for tax increases, if it means we're all a little bit more well, you mm. know? I think... I think that's the answer, personally. I'm going to answer two parts. The first thing is, if you wanted to improve mental health services in the UK and the USA, you would treat mental health workers the right way. Mm. You would pay them. Huge percentage of people working in mental health work for free as part of their training. I work for four years in the NHS, two days a week for free. I reckon they owe me about 80 grand, by the way. Uh, that is not unusual. There's 2,000 full-time jobs in this country carried out by unwaged workers. So you would pay them and you would protect them and you would give them supervision and you would protect their mental health. That's the first thing that you need to do because it, well, what matters most is you and your therapist in a room. And, and the state of your therapist is key to that. In terms of your surviving work or, or your mental health at work, it's a dual process. Okay, it's always a dual task. One is to try and change the system where you can. So if you see somebody being victimized at work, you might want to help them, either help them individually or address it within your team. Actually stand up for the people that you work with. And the second thing is to protect yourself. And you have to do whatever you can to protect yourself. I think generally most of us feel that that's best done outside of work. You have to build your relationships. You have to bully your GP. Poor GPs, they're the most mentally unwell people in the whole NHS service. I say that laughingly, but GP suicide rates are very high. Women GPs are twice as likely to kill themselves as women 
women in the general population. So we can already see that the sort of sickness of our service and the people that are working in them is really key to this. But I think it's a dual process. Challenge it where you can. If you're working in an unhealthy environment, you have to, as a group, try and resolve the issues and as an individual to protect yourself. So, look, I think that's roughly all we've got time for. There was a lot in there. Thank you both very much for coming. To sum up, one thing that we've, I think, realised is that you can't just stand on a platform and say, we're going to treat these things equally. There's, there's a hell of a lot of perception change at every level to get across before that. But yes, thank you both very much for coming in. And thanks to everyone for listening. You can find us every Thursday on SoundCloud and iTunes. Or if you can't wait that long, pick up a copy of Newsweek Europe or go to newsweek.com. Thank you very much. Botox Cosmetic, out botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive of offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.